Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for the man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Thanks, Saskia. Well, it has to be said uh, right from the very beginning uh, that this is probably one of the most difficult passages in the whole uh, of the New Testament uh, and maybe the whole of the Bible. Uh, It's difficult, I think, for a number of reasons. It's difficult because Paul seems to talk about head coverings here and we don't know exactly what he is referring to when he talks about that or it's at least confusing for us to work out. So in Paul's day, men sometimes would wear veils in pagan worship. So is he talking about that? Uh, Women sometimes wore veils just generally. And so were women in the church perhaps trying to get rid of that and that was causing offence to some people? Prostitutes would let their hair down and let their hair flow freely, suggesting that they were available. Was that the issue? Homosexual men sometimes grew long hair to blur the boundaries between men and women. Is Paul talking about that? Or is Paul making a point that's culturally dependent and something that we don't need to worry about anymore? Was he just making a point for them in their day and it's not something that needs to bother us now? So the passage is challenging because of that background. It's also challenging because it seems to say things about the relationship between men and women that we find difficult to come at with our cultural uh, surrounding. Uh, It seems to say things about the relationships between men and women that conflicts with our cultural assumptions. Of course, we need to realise at some level the Bible will always and often do that kind of thing. The Bible will often challenge assumptions that we have about the world and how the world works and how the world should be. And that's because our fundamental desire as sinful human beings is to rule the world our own way and not to listen to what God has to say. At the end of the day, God is in control and we have to learn how God wants the world to work, how he wants us to work. And the most fundamental aspect of Christianity is coming under that authority of God. 
coming under the lordship of God, coming to terms with that, acknowledging that we've tried to rule our lives our own way and coming to let that go and come under the loving and gracious rule of King Jesus. So as we come to think about these words... Let's pray, let's ask God for understanding, but let's also ask God for humility to receive his words and uh, not to come to his words in judgment, but to come under his words and to receive them as words of life. So let's pray for that. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word does speak to us and Lord, even in this passage, which is really quite difficult and quite tricky to understand, we pray that you would give us understanding, that we wouldn't sit over and above your word, but that we would sit under it, uh, whatever it has to say to us. Lord, even if it challenges some of the deepest parts of our lives, we pray, Lord, that we would be willing to receive your will for us and to receive that as good uh, and gracious and loving and compassionate. Lord, we pray these things for Jesus sake and in his name. Amen. So we'll come to the head coverings bit last um, and what Paul means by that and what it might mean for us. But it helps always when understanding anything and when understanding the Bible, it helps to start with the clear and then to move to the less clear thing. So that's what we'll try and do. So Paul begins in this passage by explaining the relationship between men and women. So he says in verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So first of all, he's saying something about the relationship between men and women and he's saying that it's a bit like the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So he says Jesus is the head of man, man is the head of the woman, and the Father is the head of Jesus. There's some, there's some similarity there. Uh, Paul is clearly using the word head in the metaphorical way. So he's using it in the same way that we might talk about the head of a company or the head prefect in a school, the head boy, you know, if you read C.S. Lewis's novels or something like that, you know, something from the middle of the last century. But what does it mean that the Father is the head of Jesus? Aren't Jesus and the Father both God? Aren't they both equally divine? And yes, the Bible does tell us that they are both equally God. And yet, the Bible does also show that there is some relationship within the members of the Trinity. So both equally God, both of equal value, but there are different roles. So often we talk about the Father uh, working through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of the model that the Bible gives us. And the very fact that the Bible uses the language of Father and Son to describe the relationship suggests some kind of order. So Father and and Son. There is a kind of an order there. The Father is the Father of the Son and the Father sends the Son And the Son goes in obedience to the Father. And the Father and the Son, in turn, together, we're told, send the Spirit. So the Father and the Son are equally God, equal in dignity, 
but there's this order in their relationship. And Paul says there's something similar between that and men and women. So just as Jesus and the Father are equal in dignity, equal in honour, but with different roles, there's also something similar, Paul says, in relationship to men and women. And what the nature of that similarity is and difference becomes clear through the rest, relatively clear, no, it becomes clear through the rest of this chapter. Now, Paul grounds that similarity and difference not only in the nature of God, in verse 3, but then also in the original act of creation that God did back in Genesis chapter 2. So in Genesis chapter 2, God explains the process by which he created men and women. And in that process, there was an order. So God created Adam first, and then Eve was created to complement Adam. She was created because Adam was alone in his task in caring for the world and in cultivating the world. And so God, we're told in Genesis 2, created Eve as a helper fit for him, quite literally as a, a, a helper uh, the opposite for him. There's this kind of idea of complementarity uh, and, and matching up. She was a kind of mirror image for Adam, fit for him, but also complementing him in ways that helped him. And Paul refers to the same thing here in this chapter. He says later in verse 8, for man did not come from woman, he's talking about Genesis 2, but woman from man, or Eve from Adam, uh, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What does that mean? The implication is that there's a kind of order, again, in the relationships between men and women. And that's not something that is restricted to this particular passage, but we find that idea, that theme throughout the New Testament. So Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So first of all, just notice a couple of things. Again, Paul is using the language of head. Okay, so the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So using similar language to 1 Corinthians 11. And second, Paul again sees a mirror in the relationship between men and women, between that and the relationship between Christ and human beings. Right? So again, he's talking along with some of the same categories as he is in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says uh, that the relationship is one of submission where the wife submits to her husband uh, in some way. He then, of course, goes on in the rest of that passage to say how husbands ought to sacrificially love their wives. And the idea seems to be that when both of them are working with, within their respective roles in those two different ways, there's a kind of synchronicity. Uh, they complement uh, and together they're greater than the power of the, if you like, the greater than the sum of their parts. So that's how this relationship of headship works out in the family. There's this 
uh, submission. It's not a, um, it's not a servile submission, uh, but a, a loving headship and a loving respect and submission. And Paul says that also works out in the church. So he says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Uh, so this is in the context, in 1 Timothy 2, it seems to be in the context of the public worship of the church, the public gathering of the church. And again, the idea is submission. And what Paul is not allowing is for women to exercise teaching authority in the context of the church, teaching authority over a man. Uh, now, we'll nut out some of the challenges of those questions in a moment, but just putting the data on the table to start with. Uh, so having said that, having said that, the Bible is careful to show, and it's important to say, that there's also equality in the value of men and women. So there's not equality in role, but there is equality of value. So same as between the Father and the Son. There's not equality of role between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. They have different roles. The Spirit has a different role as well. But there is equality of value and dignity and honour. So there's equality in value of men and women... Uh, and there's interdependence. So the order of relationship and the different roles don't make men superior to women. It doesn't make men more valuable. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible shows us that we need each other serving in our particular roles and capacities in order to do the task that God has set before us. So Paul says later in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Right? So, okay, man, Adam was created first and then Eve, but do you know, more men can't come into existence unless women are there. <laughs> so don't think that you can't, don't think that you can do it on your own. Uh, there, there is an order, but there's an there's a incredible mutual dependence as well. Uh, so the Bible is not uh, suggesting that men are in charge in every situation and that women, every woman, must listen to what every man tells her what to do. Uh, as though, you know, if someone comes up to you after church and says, go and clean the toilets, uh, you have to do that. That's not what it's saying. The context primarily seems to be in the family and in the church. Uh, and if you think about it, the church is a bit like a family as well. It's often compared to a family, so that correspondence makes some sense. So a husband is supposed to bear the responsibility of leadership in the family, uh, and men are supposed to bear the responsibility of leadership in the church in some way. Clearly not all men are leaders in the church, but at the end of the day, the overall leadership of the church has been entrusted by God to men. And we see that in the form of male elders and pastors. Now, I want to say, and it needs to be said, regrettably it needs to be said, that the Bible has no place for the subjugation and the oppression of women. It has no place for abusive husbands. 
uh, whatever kind of abuse that is, whether that's physical abuse or verbal abuse or uh, you know, kind of psychological abuse or spiritual abuse. There's no place for that. That's wicked and completely out of line with God's purposes for men and women. The Bible has no place for abusive husbands, nor does it have any place for abusive church leaders uh, that demean and diminish women. It has no place for the exclusion of women. But it does have a place for the equal value and dignity of men and women being worked out in ordered relationships in which men have been entrusted by God with leading families and leading the church. Because that's the... That's the principle. But what does that mean in practice? Let's try and put some flesh on the bones of that. Uh, At the branch, that means that the ultimate leadership of the church, the highest level of leadership of the church, has been uh, entrusted to male elders and pastors. So we have what we call the session or the church leadership council, and it's made up of godly men who are elected by the members of the church association. But under that authority, under that ultimate authority... There are women serving in various other leadership capacities under those elders. So I was sitting at my desk this morning looking at our organisational chart, as you do. What else do you do on a Sunday morning but look at the organisational chart? Uh, and I looked at all the different ministries where we have women leading. Uh, in fact, it's an enormous array. So we have women leading in music ministry, Uh, We have women leading the Sunday school ministry, the Connect team, hospitality, Little Buddies, Leaf Youth, Creche. There are lots of women engaged in those roles uh, under that ultimate overall leadership by the elders. Uh, And we see that kind of thing in the New Testament as well. So Paul often has gifted women who who were serving as his co-workers in gospel ministry. Uh, In growth groups, because there's a level of kind of spiritual oversight in that setting, uh, where we have mixed groups, there's always a male leader who's uh, responsible for that, and we try and appoint a female leader as well, because we recognise that there needs to be a kind of a complementarity to working together. Uh, And we've not always done well at that, but that's something that we're trying to do better at in the last few years. So too, this principle that the Bible seems to have and that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it seems to indicate that the public preaching and the authoritative teaching of the Bible is reserved for men. That's the practice that we have in this church in seeking to be faithful to the Scriptures, that this, what I'm doing now, this authoritative preaching uh, is reserved for men, and not all men, but for men who've been trained for that task in some particular way. So this public preaching and teaching ministry of the church is fundamentally an authoritative act. So its purpose is to lay out and explain the truths of the scriptures with the authority, in some sense, of the church as a whole and to correct errors, to say that's not right, and to call people often to repentance and faith, right? So it's a very authoritative kind of function uh, which calls people to submit to something. Uh, Not to me, but to the truth of God, but it's sort of 
mediated, if you like, through uh, those who are preaching. And also the public preaching of the gospel and the word that we do here on Sunday is one of the key ways that we lead the church. So actually the, the, the main leadership of the church is expressed in many ways through, through the public preaching of the Bible. So every week we come together and we, re, we are recalibrating ourselves together through the preaching of the word under the scriptures. We're recalibrating ourselves with the scriptures. So that's the kind of authoritative teaching uh, that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 2 that we looked at before, uh, that's reserved for men. For that reason, uh, that task is reserved for men, as uh, Paul says it ought to be. So, so that's the kind of the first principle, the relationship between men and women and the roles uh, set out, complementarity, equal value, but different roles, and complementing each other. So Paul establishes there's this order and he says that somehow that needs to be recognised when women prophesy and pray in the church. Okay, but what does that mean? What does it mean uh, that they... What is he talking about when he talks about praying and prophesying? Well, uh, it's probably pretty obvious what he means when he says prayer. But it seems to be in the context of the church being gathered together. Uh, so, it's a public context of prayer. Uh, so, too, what prophesying means is less clear, but again, it's probably in the context of the Christians being gathered together. What is prophecy, then, that he's talking about here in this passage? I take prophecy, if you think about the broader teaching of the Bible and the New Testament... I take prophecy to be largely concerned with speaking words about Christ and the gospel. Okay, so Revelation 9 verse 10, 19 verse 10, sorry, says, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Okay, so if you think about what prophets did in the Old Testament, the key task of the Old Testament prophets was to declare in advance the message about Christ, the Christ who was to come. So their task was, if you like, speaking about the future, but one of the main reasons that their task was speaking about the future was because Christ had not yet come. But the main content of their message was really about revealing Christ. We see that in lots of places in the Bible. See it in 1 Peter 1. Peter talks about the Spirit being given to speak through the prophets and so on. Uh, but now that Jesus has come, the focus of prophecy has not shifted on to something different. It's not as though prophecy in the Old Testament was focused on the person and work of Christ, and now we've reached the New Testament era. God's like, oh, um, maybe let's just talk about other things. Uh, the, the focus of prophecy remains revealing and uncovering the mystery of Christ, which has been revealed, uh, but it's been accomplished written down for us in the scriptures and so prophecy is largely explaining the significance of who Jesus is and what he has done. So prophecy is really speaking words about Christ uh, and you see that too in other places Jesus says to the disciples when you stand before rulers and judges uh, the spirit will give you words to speak 
Uh, so we see that in the New Testament, the words that people are speaking, are words empowered by the Spirit, are words about Christ. So I don't want to say that that's all the prophecy is, but I think that's the key thing. Uh, we can't lose the fact that prophecy is bound up with the person and the work of Christ. So I'd want to distinguish that, that prophecy, speaking words about Christ, that is different, I think, to this authoritative teaching that Paul talked about, remember, in 1 Timothy 2. So prophecy is not authoritatively teaching or leading or correcting or rebuking. Prophecy is less than that. Uh, we'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14 in a while, that whatever prophecy is, it's being evaluated by the church to see whether it's faithful and true, the particular prophecy that Paul's talking about. So prophecy, a word about Christ, might be sharing an encouragement from the Scriptures, it might be speaking a word in season, it might be encouraging someone with the words of Scripture, uh, it might be reminding them of the truths of the gospel. Okay, but it's different. It's of a lower order, in inverted commas, than the authoritative kind of preaching, teaching, authoritative ministry of the church. Again, to put some flesh on the, on the bones, uh, what does that mean in practice? Well, it means Paul obviously has a vision of women leading the church in prayer. We had that this morning. Susan came and prayed for us. Uh, it can also be, in our context, women leading uh, kids' talks, ministry spots. And in that ministry spot, there's obviously opportunity not just to talk about what's happened, 14 people were converted, but to share the truths of, of the Bible, to put those in the context of what the Bible says about mission and so on. Uh, to show how God is keeping his promises in the Scripture, uh, in the context of mission. So... Under that authoritative teaching and leadership of the elders, there is obviously this place, Paul sees, for women to be engaged in prayer and in words of encouragement, uh, Bible words, words about Christ. So that's number two. But Paul says that when women do that, they ought to have something on their head. That they ought to cover their heads. What's going on with that? So that brings us to the most difficult part that you've all been waiting for, maybe. What, what does that mean? Where, do we have to wear hats? Or, you know, do women have to wear hats? Should Susan have been wearing a hat this morning? That would be awkward if I was about to say yes. <laughs> so what makes this passage really difficult... Or, yes, I don't actually think it is difficult. That's an extraordinary thing to say. But what makes it seem difficult is that traditionally people have understood that Paul is using the word head in two different ways in this passage. Okay, so one way is metaphor. Okay, this is about to get quite technical, but just stick with me, okay? Uh, so, <laughs> this is really ugly as well. I just hate it. But anyway, just... Ignore the terrible colours and everything. So Paul is using the one word head, it's often understood in two different ways. Okay, so one definition is metaphorical, Christ is the head of man, and the other is physical, a man shouldn't wear a hat on his head. So I've tried to display those two things. In look at that, look at that. Woo! 
Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the physical, right? And then over here we've got the metaphorical. There's a few places where it says metaphorical. Um, okay, so th that's the way it's normally understood. So he starts off by talking about the metaphorical thing, Christ is a metaphorical head, and then he goes on to talk about actual head coverings. Okay, hats or whatever it might be. But I want to make the rather bold claim uh, that Paul is not really saying anything at all in this section about physical head coverings. And for the most part, he's actually speaking entirely metaphorically. Now, I want you to know, I should preface this by saying, this is my own view and has very little support from anyone else. But I think there's very... I think there's very good, oops, I think there's very good reasons for thinking this, and I want to show you what that is. Um, so there are two places where Paul does actually speak about physical realities. I put those in purple, okay? So in verse 5, it's the same as having her actual head shaved, okay? He's clearly talking about a physical reality, and then in verse 14 and 15, he's also talking about a physical reality where he says... Um, judge for yourselves, isn't it the nature of things, right? Um, uh, if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace, right? And if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. Long hair is a covering for her. That last one is clearly talking about hair. It's clearly talking about hair, and it's clearly making a comparison between the normal sort of, if you like, living conditions, you know, the normal ways that things happen. So there's two places where he's very clearly talking about physical realities. Uh, with regard to the second one, it's really important to understand that he doesn't actually use the word covering that's used elsewhere. So earlier in the chapter he said women ought to cover their heads, men shouldn't have their heads uncovered. But when he comes and says that women's women are given their hair as a covering in verse 15, it's not the same word. It's a very different word. It's a word that means something like cloak or wrap. Be very careful to distinguish that he's talking about something else. Uh, so too, he doesn't use the word head in the places where it looks like he does. That's not that helpful. Okay, so... In that first purple example, in verse 5, uh, he doesn't actually say she should have her head shaved. He doesn't use the word head. He just says she should be shaved. He's very careful to avoid using the word head when he's talking about the physical reality. Um, so too, in uh, other places, he avoids using the word uh, head, as you can see there. So, in verse 6, she should have her... doesn't say head shaved, it says she should be shaved, she shouldn't cover her head. Uh, and then later on, uh, I'll get to that in a second. Okay, sorry, it's just... bear with me. Um, he also introduces both those purple sections by making it clear that he's making a comparison. Okay, so he says in verse 5, it is the same as, right? So that's how you introduce 
a comparison with something that's not the same thing, right? It's a simile, okay? And in the second one, he says, in verse 14 and 15, he says, uh, is it not the nature of things? So he's, again, it's clear that he's introducing it by making a comparison. Uh, in verse 10, some translations put the word a woman should have a sign or a symbol of authority on their head. I think the ESV does that. But the NIV actually is pretty good. It says the woman ought to have authority on her own head, but the word own is not there. Okay? It just says a symbol of authority upon her head. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to undermine your confidence in Bible translations by doing this and showing you how many words are not there and how many words have been mistranslated. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible and words that, passages that are difficult are difficult to translate. Okay? So this is not true of other places in the Bible. It's not usually this difficult. Finally, Paul begins by defining his terms very carefully in verse 3. So he tells us what he means by using the word head. And there doesn't seem to be any particular reason to stray from that definition through the chapter. He's very careful not to use the word head in other places where he's talking about physical realities, and he's been very careful to explain what he means by the term head. And in fact, it doesn't make sense unless you understand it's like this. Because Paul says that a woman, if she prays or prophesies, should have her head covered. But then her hair is given to her for a covering. So if that's a covering, why does she need to wear a hat? So there's a, if you don't understand it, that he's talking metaphorically the whole way through, then it actually, there's a contradiction there that doesn't make any sense. You with me? Okay, sorry, it's, this, is, this is... Stick with me. So if we accept that the meaning of the whole passage is of head through that passage is, is used universally, then actually the meaning of the passage becomes really quite simple uh, and actually really quite straightforward and not particularly difficult at all, I think which is a slightly bold claim, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So the point that Paul is essentially making is that we ought not to upend the order that God has established between men and women. That's all he's saying. Okay? So if a man puts himself under the authority of a woman, it's metaphorically speaking covering his head that is, covering Christ. He's replacing Christ with another authority. Because in the order that God has established, Christ is the head of man, not woman the head of man. Uh, conversely, if a woman steps out from under the authority of her husband, say, or the elders of the church, then she uncovers her head. She takes the authority that should be there away and so dishonours the head that Christ has put in place. 
In other words, when you look at it very carefully, Paul is essentially saying here what he says in those other places in Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. It all just falls out actually quite neatly. Paul is uh, just saying that God has established his order of, and differing responsibilities and our task is to uphold that. Okay, So he's not making a point about what men or women should wear on their heads. It doesn't matter what people were doing in the first century particularly. Uh, we don't really need to understand that. Uh, the point is that uh, God has established these relationships uh, and we ought to uh, uh, adhere to that. And the point that he's making too, please understand, is that these respective roles of men and women are not grounded in hairstyles. He makes a kind of a vague comparison. Oh, you know, don't you know that women often have their hair long uh, and men often have their hair short? You know, it's, it's kind of the same. That's all he's... It's, like, it's a bit like that. That's all he's saying. But for the most part, he grounds his argument in the nature of God. Father is the head of the Son. Christ is the head of man. And he grounds it in the order of creation, how God created men and women in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, what Paul is saying here is not culturally determined, but they are truths really that are independent of culture. Whew, okay. That's the hard bit. So what does that look like in practice? Let's think practically to try and work out how this plays out. Okay, just try and understand. Well, to go back to the example from before, Paul said, women pray and prophesy in church. Okay, but when they do so, he's saying they need to make sure that their head is covered. What does that mean? Well, it's possible, as Susan did this morning, to pray, lead us in prayer, and to do that in a way that honours and respects the authority of the church and those who've been put in authority to lead the church. It's also possible to come up and to pray in such a way that you undermine that. Okay, So they're doing the same role, doing the same task, but to pray in such a way that it begins to move into that realm of authority, correction, rebuke. You can pray in such a way that you challenge and call out sin in the church for example and maybe that would be i think paul is saying inappropriate in the same way you could lead a kids talk in a way that that is speaks a word of encouragement that respects the leadership of the church and so on or you could do it in a way that corrects rebukes begins to take a kind of an authoritative teaching edge so too in a ministry spot or whatever it might be and i think in all those cases paul is saying that those things are beginning to upend the order in which God has created uh, the relationship between men and women. So too in a growth group, there are different ways of running growth groups. So some people lead a growth group, they're basically a facilitator. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? It's not claiming any kind of authority. But it's also possible for someone to lead a growth group in such a way that it begins to take on an element of authoritative teaching. No, that's wrong. You shouldn't think like that. You need to repent. That kind of tone, shift in tone, is the kind of thing that Paul is saying we need to be careful of. 
It's true of growth group leading. It's true of ministry spots. It's true of training nights. Uh, it's possible to lead a training night which leads the church in understanding a particular area or something of, uh, of the Christian life. But it's possible to do that in a way which is, let's look at this together. It's possible to do that in a way which is authoritative uh, and declaratory, to, to declare truths, to correct rebuke. So it's not just task or role or office or position, but often it's tone which is the way in which these things work out. Well, at the end of the day, I think what Paul is saying here is relatively clear once we understand the complexities. Uh, and we need to understand it that what he's saying is in line with what he says in other places in the scriptures. What he's saying is maybe challenging for our cultural assumptions uh, that men and women have different roles, they've been assigned different roles by God. But we need to accept that if that's God's plan and purpose for us and we need to live within that. And we need to understand too that if we live within that, it's actually for our good and for God's glory and for the flourishing of his church. So let me pray and ask that God would help us to live according to those plans and purposes. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you Lord, that uh, you are a gracious and loving God. Uh, and Lord, when we study a passage like this, it can be hard. There's lots of things to understand. Uh, but also, Lord, sometimes it challenges us in deeper ways as well. Uh, we don't like what it says. Uh, Lord, that could be for a multiplicity of reasons. It could be because... Um, uh, we're a woman and we, we don't want to submit to, to someone else, Lord, or perhaps because we're a man and we don't want to take on responsibility. Lord, whatever the reasons, uh, if, if there are reasons that we don't like what you say, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to humbly uh, repent from that and to seek your grace uh, and your plan and purpose for us. Lord, we just pray most of all that you'd help us to honour the, the different ways that you've made us as men and women, uh, that you'd help us to honour each other, whatever our role or responsibility, that you'd help us to love each other, whatever our role or responsibility, uh, and that you would uh, help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, uh, but to submit to one another in love and 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 grace. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.